All right, welcome back for the EI Podcast, East Ridge Investigations Podcast. Life, murder, motorcycles, tales of multiple generations of police officers. This week's sponsor, of course, is Eastridge Investigations. Check it out at eastridgeinvestigations.com or .net. Net.com. All right, eastridgeinvestigations.com. Also, honorary sponsor this week, EDC Belt Company. The foundation belt, the most comfortable functional concealed carry belt on the market today, hands down, also owned by another Eastridge. All right, this week, we're going to talk about our first crime scenes. Uh, And some of us had a little overlap. And we've also brought in last week's guest, H.L. Christensen, to talk about his first crime scene as well. All right, everyone, stay tuned. And we're live. Welcome back, Kyle, Gary, Brian, and HL. So, uh, so Kyle, uh, who wants to go first? I think we should go by age. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I think age and generation. Let's talk, let's talk your first crime scene. And, and let's keep it to murder. How about that or homicide? Not necessarily murder, but first, uh, first homicide we worked. So, uh, you hired on in 79. So let's hear about that. Well, the first uh, homicide I worked as a homicide investigator was uh, an old guy named Lanky Ballard. Oh, you're going to go right to the investigation side. Okay, yeah. perfect. Yeah, I, uh, I can remember my first, first death scene, but I don't really remember my first homicide scene as a patrol officer. Okay. As an investigator, I had Lanky Ballard was an old guy that lived down off of about Southwest 25th in Kentucky. Uh, lovely neighborhood, by the he, way. A lovely neighborhood. He was in his late 70s and still working on a roofing crew. He had probably made some life choices that weren't real sound that resulted in him roofing houses at the ripe old age of 70 plus. Maybe he was just a workaholic. Who knows? He uh, he invited a coworker to have drinks. Another bad life choice. The uh, the coworker was in his mid thirties and was a robust young man who had a significant drinking and substance problem. Uh, during their their conversations, Lanky probably said something that offended the young man, and the old man mounted him. Mounted like he got on top of him? He mounted him. According to Lanky's uh, statement, he straddled him and was beating him. Uh, Lanky happened to have a Smith & Wesson Model 60. Hold on. You said Lanky's statement. So Lanky was not the victim of the Uh, murder. Lanky was the SU, not the VI. Oh, wow. Uh, Lanky produced a Model 60 that he had secreted. Model uh, 60. Tell me about a Model 60. What is that? Uh, Model 60 is a five-shot stainless steel J-frame Smith & Wesson. As you and I are both Smith & Wesson collectors, we assume everybody knows that. Yeah, Model 60 would yeah. be like a stainless chief special. Exactly. Uh, he fires one round, uh, striking the aggressor in the chest. 
the aggressor left the residence and proceeded down Southwest 25th Street, leaving a nice blood trail. Sound like a game uh, trail. And yeah. died about two houses uh, away from the residence that this. Where was he shot? He was shot pretty well center high chest. Oh, wow. We've talked about uh, that before. A couple interesting things on the case. I, I still remember uh, my partner and I, Randy Scott, and I arrived at the scene. And uh, as he's processing the scene, we have Lanky transported down to the police station and we follow the blood trail. And as I'm following the blood trail, I see a red stain and a brown stain. Oh, boy. oh yeah. Red Keep... stain, brown stain. Few feet, red stain, brown stain. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell is this brown stain. Oh, I remember where this is going. And I look at one of the younger patrolmen standing on the porch of the house where the body was found, and notice he has a big chaw tobacco <laughs> in his face. <laughs> Now, I was also a tobacco chewer at the time, but I didn't do it on crime scenes. So, uh, And, and by I, this time in, in, in your career, DNA was a thing? It was a thing, but it was not a routine thing mm-hmm. as right. it became. But preservation of the crime scene and right. of the evidence, uh, being a homicide investigator, you don't want any foreign contamination like, to uh, your crime scene. FI cards over shell casings. Right. That's yeah. a whole nother story. Yeah. Anyway, and so never never add to or take away from a crime scene. So so I uh, I ask a supervisor, a, a patrol supervisor. I said, "You got any idea what this uh, brown substance is next <laughs> to this red substance that I presume to be blood?" And the supervisor says, I don't. And I said, well, I do. Notice your man up there chewing tobacco. <laughs> Would you get him the hell off of my scene, please? <laughs> so I always thought it was a fireman that did that because yeah. years later working crime scenes, I'd see a guy throw a dip in or a chew a tobacco. And I'd go, hey, man, do that by your police car. Exactly. Oh, oh. No, it was it was a patrolman. And uh, who? I don't think he... He thought about what he was doing. It was a pretty clear-cut case. Right. We had, there were there was no dispute over who did it. It was just a dispute over was it a justified shooting or not. Right. Well, let me ask you this. Do you remember the ammunition type? I do not. Okay. I, I, I don't remember the ammunition. But it, uh, it, what was the fatal wound? You said high center chest. Did it take a heart or lungs or it, both? Uh, just, uh, it was above the lungs, uh, but he died from loss of blood. Yeah, it was a bleeder. It sounds it, like maybe that artery under the... Yeah. Brachial. Yeah. Brachial, yeah. yeah. I, I, and I don't remember specifically. Um, I know that uh, patrol took Lanky downtown. We interviewed him. Uh, went to see one of my favorite assistant district attorneys, Don Deason. May he rest yeah. in peace. Great, Later great a judge, guy. great human Loved being. Loved him. Uh, but was he, not afraid to hold a cop's feet to the firing no, court either, no, which I, I really appreciated about him. I respected him, him for I've it. had my ass chewed royally by <laughs> Don Deason. Oh, yeah. In this case, Don said, uh, bring me a blue sheet for second-degree murder, and we protested a little bit, probably not as uh, to the level we should have. To me, it was a clear-cut uh, case of self-defense. You had aged, decrepit versus 
vigorous and robust. A uh, little disparity of force. The There was a couple neat elements to, for me. It was my first recollection of an in-depth examination of tattooing and stippling. Really? And the tattooing and stippling. Well, let's, was, before we go into that, what is tattooing and stippling? When you, when you fire a, a firearm, the burning powder particulates are expelled, some of them burning, some of them burnt, some of them unburned, and they will form a, it almost looks like very small freckling, mm-hmm. and it usually only occurs within... I think it's about uh, 36 inches. Yeah, the 36 inches, It's it's they dissipate enough that you don't see the pattern. In this Unless incident... black powder. The... the uh, <laughs> The, the the stippling and tattooing pattern was approximately a four or five inch circle and noticeably more on the top on top I mean above the wound the entry wound and less below the entry wound which can be explained by the angle of the gun we thought all the evidence was pretty clear that it was a self-defense type situation. So we're fast forward uh, a year later, and poor old Lanky is languishing in the Oklahoma County Jail. And uh, we get called for a meeting to prepare for preliminary hearing. While we're there, I, I informed Don that it's my intention to testify for the defense. In reality, you don't testify for or against anybody. You are a fact witness. Right. You testify, and whether but, that helps the defense or the prosecution. But, but your facts were more likely to uh, affect the defense than the prosecution. Oh, ab- absolutely. Right. I had a couple like that, too. So yeah, and, and that's uh, once we went in and explained to uh, Don that we were going to testify that, in our opinion— the evidence supported a self-defense claim. Uh, he ultimately made the decision to, to dismiss Dismiss-y. the case. A year, uh, and that's and a lot uncommon. of that's that's actually the norm. Uh, so and, and those who are involved, I, I work for a company now that we deal with self-defense situations. There's there is there's a process to determine justification right. of the use of lethal force. Uh, a root, if you are filed on, in, and in my experience, this is true nationwide, uh, a preliminary hearing is anywhere from a year to a year and a half down the road. A jury trial can be two to five years down right. the road. Why? I, think, I think the average, when I was in homicide, I think the average around three to five, uh, three to five years to get something to trial. Yeah, so that's a case of he was in his home in a defensive shooting and still spent a year in the jail. Still yep. in the years. Couldn't roof any houses for a year. Oof. Uh, may have done him a favor there. But, well, uh, yeah, three hots and a cot, as they say. Uh, but uh, it was it was a pretty mundane case. In, and keep in mind, when we talk about murder – and ultimately, that one was determined not to be a murder case. It was a homicide case. A lot of people don't understand the distinction that homicide is simply one human taking the life of another human or, a human or causing the death 
of another human where murder is a criminal homicide. Right. Right. Well, that's uh, that's pretty fascinating. And it, it kind of leans into my wheelhouse, which is, you know, teaching people to lawfully and safely yeah. handle firearms, et cetera. Uh, so, Kyle, 85, you probably hit the streets in 86 or at least had your wheels under you in 86, right? Yeah, I, I remember responding to a murder down on 2nd Street when I was in the FTO program. The Deuce, which, yeah. side note, is now the kind of semi-bougie place to live in Oklahoma City. Yeah, Back then, it wasn't. I think yeah, that I think the asphalt was, companies covered all the heroin needles. and Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the 300 block of Northeast 2nd when I hit the street in 1979 was the worst block in right. Oklahoma City. Well, I, I, w- I responded there with my training officer on a – a domino game that turned violent and uh a domino uh, game no oh yeah dominoes is a big thing if you don't know there's a lot of gambling involved in it but a guy pulled a knife and another guy pulled a pistol and we know who won but i really did nothing on that didn't have much experience with the scene basically did scene security but my actual first homicide, I don't remember names, but I remember the details very w- well in patrol on my own. I got a call uh, on a home invasion in the middle of the night. I mean, I work graveyard, so nothing ever happened at a decent hour. But uh, it was a lady that was in her bed and her husband was stabbed to death next to her in the bed with a big chef's knife from the house. Wow. And I remember, I remember clearly that Bob Bimo was uh, the de- one of the detectives on that. But from a patrol standpoint, you don't get a lot of exposure to that scene because you, like we discussed earlier, you don't want to contaminate it. But there is a brief moment you have to go in, clear a house, make sure nobody else is there. You got to secure that scene. You got to secure that scene. And I remember that her side of the bed was so clean, and his side of the bed looked like uh, somebody had been murdered. Yeah, like a slaughterhouse. I mean, it was bloody. Did she wake up during this? Well, what turned out was uh, she was the suspect. Oh, the, imagine the chef that. knife was from the house, and she stabbed him to death and then tried to stage it looking like somebody had come through a window. And, uh, and I, I just, I, of course, as a patrol officer, I didn't investigate it. I just took the report and stood by for whatever homicide needed, and uh, I learned later that they had charged her with the murder, but, and then my first actual homicide, uh, case was when I was an assault detective and assaults, uh, the assault unit isn't responsible for homicides, but if, if a, a person is assaulted and they end up dying later in a hospital, you know, you've already, handled the scene you've already started talking to witnesses back in those days it was pretty rare for homicide to take it from you right they left it with you to deal with and they'd give you all the guidance you needed but we worked tons of violent crimes so it wasn't that big of a jump 
from what we were doing to a homicide. But um, in, in this case, it was a street party on the east side. A guy that uh, the victim was a guy I, I had handled several times in, in the assault unit. Yesterday's was, uh, suspect, tomorrow's victim. Absolutely. Right? He, you know, up on 23rd Street Northeast, about mm-hmm. Fonshill or somewhere, there's a church's chicken. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he shot a dude up there and nearly killed him was involved in several shootings. Well, he happened to be at a street party and a couple of young girls that turned out to be prostitutes showed up, had a dispute going with somebody else at the party, and then one of them just fired rounds into the crowd and this lucky gentleman caught one. <laughs> so, I worked I worked two homicides at that same church as yeah. chicken. Yeah, well, I worked a couple active. right in that same block. Yeah, that's the Fonshill Crips, wasn't it? That yeah. Ran yeah. That well, and that and, and that was a gathering point on on weekend nights. We would frequently have crowds gather there, shut right. down traffic, and have hundreds of people crammed into a, a small area. Yeah, yeah. I that's... mean, it's a, it was it kept us in assaults very active, and I remember as an assault detective. When they formed the now defunct gang unit, how much that unit helped us solve cases because they were out there every day, every night, interviewing these guys, chasing these guys down. It wasn't hard to find them because we had that unit, you know. Yeah, the uh, uh, it, matter of fact, my my first homicide wasn't far from there, but one of my mentors, Tom Givens, who. You know, he's a mentor. He's also a, a, a friend now. But uh, he talked in one of his lectures and classes about violent crime statistics and how the public has a really skewed view of how they interpret violent crime statistics and how victims of an aggravated assault or an assault with a deadly weapon are simply just really bad homicide victims. They're just the ones that lived. Right. And that if you... If you're looking at violent crime statistics and you see that there are a number of aggravated assaults in an area, well, due to the miracles of modern medical technology, probably those are just homicide suspects that didn't, or homicide victims that didn't expire. They survived. They survived. Well, and, and after 20 years of police work, I had never looked at it that, that way. Well, uh, that's it? an interesting point because as an assault detective, we racked up a lot of overtime going out and working our butts off to to find out why this guy got shot and who did it, only to have the surviving victim say, I'm not testifying against anybody right. and shutting that down. And the only reason a lot of them end up being prosecuted is they're not alive to say they don't want to cooperate. One of the other things that, that I noted was the way the cases were handled. When you had a homicide, you had a victim that was deceased. The homicide detective completely controlled that scene. Right. You you said when that technical investigator went in, you directed them on top of the routine things they did, that the things you wanted collecting. You as a assault detective, how many times did you show up to a scene and the TI had already processed and was buttoning up and getting ready to leave it was pretty common in the in the beginning but uh, 
we actually worked real hard to change that. In the early days in assaults, I I had a 35-millimeter camera, and I'd take my own photos. Yeah. Because I knew the TIs were busy, and some of them had either come and gone or you were. But we ultimately formed that same system that Homicide had before I I left there. When when you say TI, what you're referring to is technical investigations, which was the moniker for... Ah, uh, this crime just pains me to now. say crime scene investigation, CSI. CSI. Yeah. Now, they made a show about them. They did. Uh, they made several series, and the odd thing very was accurate. Our, our good friend Eric, uh, when I was in the Academy in 2002, the original CSI had come out in about 2000, 2001. And I, growing up around the culture of the department, had always referred to crime scene investigators as TIs or technical investigators, uh, even going back to the era when they wore the same uniform that patrol did. Right. right. And then they went to a blue BDU uniform and they were, they were TI. Um, and the week of my Academy, they rebranded that unit as CSI and our mutual bud, Eric was incensed because yeah, he's teaching He's teaching an academy on latent prints and right. how to how to not tamper a crime scene, and he goes, "Hi, my name's Eric Richardson, and uh, I'm now part of the CSI unit." And it was right. all derived from a freaking TV show. We're gonna have to have him on. Because we will. I've worked so many deals with him, but what's funny about what you mentioned is my first death scene. I say death scene because it looked bad, but ultimately wasn't a homicide. There's a lot of weird stuff went on there, but I worked with Eric. I had worked hundreds of crime scenes with Eric, and it was my first day in homicide, middle of June. It was hot. It was probably in the 90s, and someone noticed a um, a semi sitting in the parking lot of one of the truck stops off of Reno, and there was some stinky ooze dripping out of it. <laughs> I saw those scene photos. Thank oh, you. Lord, broad daylight, noon. People were there, a crowd that gathered around there had to be 50, 60 people. Because everybody wants to see until they don't, or till they see, and then they don't. And then that they includes unsee. cops. Right. And you mentioned those BDUs. I know Eric was grateful to have them on that day. Because he was him and John Howard from the ME's office, they came out. We get the door open. There's a guy sitting on the edge of a sleeper. He's split across the middle, and he's completely decomped. And it is decomposed. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they worked for hours in there getting that seed out. They had to get the seed out to get him out. And uh, he rough. He weighed. Roughly 300 pounds before he died from his SDL, but we state, all know what decomp. Yeah, we all know what decomp uh, does to a body. So he was about twice his normal size. <sighs> and I remember standing outside as they were trying to bring his body out. Well, he was somewhat slippery, <laughs> as you can imagine. He shot out of their grasp and splatted on the pavement in front of all those people. From the height of a semi-cab. Yeah, it was not pleasant. 
I'm sorry to laugh, but you know well, the traumatic nature of the work we've done for so many years. This you is can't that help dark but, humor we yeah, talked what about. That talking you, about. You, you, but, uh, I I will say this though: it was my first day in homicide. I was working with Mike Burke. Well, you know, another future guest, one of the best. We've mentioned him before. Uh, we wrap it up. We wrap the scene work up. We've talked to everybody. Prostitutes had noticed him being dead before anybody else, so they had been making visits to his camper to steal shit. <laughs> but we all decided to go have lunch, so we go to one of the homicide unit's favorites was Neptune Subs. Oh yeah, up on Classen. Yep. Nice little sport coats and all that. We're sitting there, and I notice people around us are staring at us. And then I got a whiff of my own stink, and that decomp was just permeated into my sport coat. Yeah. We stunk. How many times did you go home? Oh, yeah, I brought that home. And Tanya or one of the kids go, what is that smell? I always left my shoes on the porch. Well, I used to wear, um, when I was playing music part-time, I used to wear a, a Fender branded watch and it was on a leather watch band that I'd bought that, uh, I've lost so many digital watches over the years from fighting people that the rubber band on the watch would break. And, uh, I worked a nasty decomp one day, um, uh, I can't remember who the investigator was, but anyway, I'd, I'd worked to this decomp and, I stripped down to my skivvies in the garage and I went in and it was my, my first wife and I were together and, and, uh, that's another common theme, but anyway, uh, we touched on that. Yeah. Right? Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. Well, first wife and I, and I walk in and I'm in a t-shirt, my underwear socks and just my, uh, my watch band. And she says, well, how was your night? And I said, not good. And then I reached up to kind of wipe my nose and realized that the leather watch band I was wearing had soaked up all of the stank. And uh, I, I got that mic muted, so you're good. Um, it, anyway, so I, I promptly trashed that, and I learned about uh, spring bars and how to change a watch band out. So, But my, uh, my first real uh, introduction to a crime scene, you can go ahead, HL, that mic's muted. And I'll edit that out. My first introduction to a uh, crime scene was I was in the FTO program, third phase, and I met several legends on this crime scene uh, right at the end of the shift. And I hadn't worked a body yet. And one comes out at like 6.50 and we're going to the station to do paperwork. And my FTO says, let's go. And we get there, and it was it was kind of in a nicer neighborhood on the side of town I worked. And I get there, and the first guy I see is this older black gentleman with like salt and pepper hair. And he walks up, and he walks up to me, and he goes, "You look just like Gary Eastridge." And I went, "Uh, we haven't met. My name's Brian." And he goes, "It was T. Martin, Theopolis okay. Martin." And he was taking his morning walk and finds a body, uh, and. Anyway, we rope the scene and look around and okay, everything's good and get everything secured. And then my uncle shows up on the scene and I, and I think this was Oh three. So you would have been in homicide for what, maybe six months, a year, three years at that time. Okay. So been in three years and, uh, 
I've got everything locked down. And we don't know if this guy has just stumbled into the woods or not, but just where it's at, it looks like he's been dumped. And uh, the first thing I remember was my uncle coming around going, let me see the bottoms of your shoes. And I'm like, okay, no problem. So I lift my boots up and he looks at them and he looks at everybody. And one of the officers there got kind of snarky and he goes, look, dude, I'm just trying to eliminate you from the scene. So what do you mean the scene? He goes, well, there's footprints up there. And anyway, this, this contentious thing goes on and I walk over and this kid walks up to me and goes, your uncle's kind of a jerk. I said, you know, if you would have just like lifted up your shoe, this would have been over five minutes ago. But there were several footprints around the body, and it turns out the guy was dumped. And uh, and that was a routine thing that you did was photograph investigators, everybody's shoe, uh, uh, soles of their shoes. Right. It's for elimination purposes. Well, fortunately for me, uh, you know, I have the advent of having a source directly there at the scene, uh, which was Kyle. And uh, he calls me the next night before I'm going to go on shift. And he says, hey, we think this guy lives over here. And when I go into work that night, there is a crime scene at a house. Like they, it is an abandoned house, kind of a clap house, you know, just it's in foreclosure and the bank doesn't even want it. And they see blood and mattresses and, and Clorox and all kinds of stuff. Um, and when I get there, I'm just going to take over the scene. And it was one of my last nights in training. And, hey, you guys are just going to watch the scene. And when I get there, there's another officer that's digging through a trash can and finds a set of latex gloves. And he picks them up, and I go, put those down right now. I said, and he, what, what? And I go, they can fingerprint the inside of those. Put them down. Yeah. And the cat goes, well, no, there's no. And I said, hey, man. And I quoted another homicide that you had told me about where you had taken fingerprints out of the inside of a set of latex gloves. And I said, there's no need to tamper with any more of this. I said, matter of fact, all y'all get out of here and go sit in your cars. Well, nobody knew me at the time. And my FTO, Mr. Mike Pribble, walks over to me and he goes, do you realize you just chewed the ass of another FTO in front of his recruit and everybody else? And I said, well, F that guy. He shouldn't have been screwing around in the crime scene. Okay, uh, well, I've got to I've got to give you low marks in your officer interaction, but I've got to give you real high marks in all these other areas for preserving the crime scene. I said that's okay. I'll go to the homicide office and explain what just happened. And uh, everybody got quiet. Everybody went to their cars, and it worked out fine. But uh, that was one of the I dare dare I say fringe benefits of having a family that was involved in homicide investigation was I kind of thought about four steps ahead of where most of the newer cops thought um, as far as crime scenes and crime scene preservation and things like that. And uh, my attitude was always, if we know there's a body or there's a crime scene, there's no reason to do anything else. Throw, throw crime scene tape around it and wait. And I'm sure they chalked it up to, well, he's an Eastridge. I actually heard that several times between a couple of captains and a major, but that's beside the point. Uh, that kind of set the tone of a career. But uh, anywho, uh, if you want, or that that was my first scene. So, yeah, I got, I got kind of admonished a bit, but also praised a bit. And you were saying, Kyle? 
Well, you saved that crime scene for us. We were actually able to link that crime scene back to our victim with the evidence from the trash can that the FDL was monkeying around with. Also, uh, projectiles from the scene match those that he'd been murdered with. And we ultimately searched that property based upon your findings and we found the murder weapons stashed in the backyard. And basically, the story, they were under a rock of all things. Yeah, they were under a, a flat rock, and then they had like a, a, a bucket or something. Yeah. I can't remember. That was the bucket they cleaned up with. But uh, I remember that guy had just got out of the victim, had just got out of prison for armed robbery, decided of all things he was going to rob the neighborhood gangbangers selling crack. <laughs> he busts in on them. He tells them to throw everything on the ground. Well, when a crackhead sees crack on the ground, that is very distracting to him. Odd. So, so he tucked his gun under his arm and went to picking up crack, and they shot him up pretty good. So, And I'll never forget, uh, I actually got looped in on the DA's ruling of that. Right. And I'll never forget, he said, well, the Castle Doctrine even applies to people that are defending a crack house. Yeah. And they dismissed on all of yeah. those dudes. Yeah, he wouldn't, wouldn't file on them. But I know that prosecutor, He's a, I won't name him. We might have him on the show at some point. But he's a smart cookie, and and he, he understood that was going to be a major challenge. Now, how they handled things after that, he, they could have been charged for, but... Well, yeah, but uh, that was kind of uh, what we often jokingly refer to as a misdemeanor killing. It, it right. just, uh, nobody bad, and I hate to say that about human life, but there are just some people that need to get plucked from the Lord's garden, you know? Right, and we, <laughs> we worked, like we mentioned earlier, we worked them all the same. Right. It's just that it's real hard to feel bad for a, a guy that was robbing a crack house. A convicted armed robber right. committing a robbery? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, unfortunately, he was uh, he was robbing a crack house, and even the DA could see capitalism is capitalism, regardless of how legal it is at the time. But, uh, no, I kid. But anyway, that yeah, that was a, a really interesting dive into, um, you know, into police work, especially, and I... I looked at it as a real benefit that I had family there on the scene to kind of give me some insider intel there. And, uh, and I guess next we're going to bring in HL and let him, uh, talk about his first crime scene. Now, HL, you were in the last episode and I assume introduced yourself cause I was in the other room, but, uh, are you there? You yeah. got, I, uh, I, th I think we've covered uh, that as kind of covered your background, background a little bit. Sure. Cool. Uh, the one, the case that stands out to me as being my first homicide scene, uh, bear in mind during our Academy, we shadow other agents and, and see how they work scenes and things of that nature. But the one that sticks out to me as being my first, you know, solo homicide, uh, of course, a accompanied by uh, training agents is uh, in Wayne, Oklahoma. Wayne. Wayne Payne. In a glorious trailer park in Wayne, Oklahoma. Uh, I was there on a 49-year-old man. Uh, his name was uh, Carol Price, as I recall. Yeah. And he uh, uh, had a buddy named Chad Miller. He's a 35-year-old guy. 
who uh, had spent some time, <coughs> excuse me, in the uh, local jail. And while he was in jail, uh, Carol had sold some of his stuff and not bailed him out. He was supposed oh, to sell no. his stuff, bail him out, and get his freedom. Uh, when Carol did get his freedom uh, from that particular issue, uh, he showed up at, I'm sorry, when Chad got his freedom, uh, he showed up at uh, Carol's trailer and forced entry with a hammer. Uh, they uh, exchanged, you know, pleasantries. And, and hammer uh, blows. And hammer blows, and that also transitioned to the use of a baseball bat that was in this, inside the trailer. Uh, one of the things that sticks out to me about that scene, number one, how cramped it can be when you're trying to work a crime scene that you're trying not to disturb in a trailer in the middle of uh, uh, what is still the remnants of summer. I believe it was October. But uh, um, also that's one of the first times I took a severe ass chewing where I thought I was going to get fired because <laughs> uh, I allowed the uh, crime scene agent there at the time from uh, the agency that was working in that law enforcement side to LCV the body. What's LCV? Now that's uh, a, a process by which they uh, reveal um, fingerprints and blood. So they spray on a solution uh, looking for a reaction. Uh, Luco Crystal Violet, I believe, okay. is the is a, uh, acronym. And uh, they're looking for fingerprints. Now, um, I allowed that process to occur uh, to the extent that I'm trying to further a criminal investigation, further the, uh, the apprehension of a, of a criminal there. When the body arrived back at the morgue, uh, you know, several hours later when I arrived back at the morgue, there was an ass chewing waiting for me from a, a small female pathologist who wanted to know. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> wanted to know why I had smurfed her body. Smurf. Why so do they call it smurfing? It, the body was a, a, a sort of a the area, the torso and uh, the appendage area that was exposed was a shade of blue slash violet. So and is that, that from the LCV that's process? From the process, absolutely. <laughs> so I I got that chewing. I stood my ground at that point and said I did this because we're trying to assist law enforcement in you know obtaining some leads. Now it it didn't accomplish anything. But uh, they later got uh, uh, where they needed to get with the... Uh, but it made for a good conversation piece, absolutely. apparently. Absolutely. And how many times have you had to take that risk? Sometimes, a lot of times in this evidence collection cycle or procedure, you're doing things that can have a damaging effect. Well, DNA, you have a sample, and if it turns out to be uh, a small sample, you may consume that whole sample right doing your testing absolutely so lc so you lcv'd somebody in the local trailer park smurfed him smurfed him smurfed him and i i had to account for it yeah so how did that ultimately pan out ultimately it did pan out and they got a conviction uh as i recall um they got a conviction in 2007 so did uh any of the jurors ask why the body was a shade of violet. No, I, I don't recall that portion. Our our uh, testimony was always kind of limited on uh, chain of custody and evidence handling and things of that nature. But uh, I'm sure the question came up during the photo portion. Well, it could have been. Um, so you you mentioned working a cramped crime scene in a trailer. What caused all the complications? Just surely the size of the uh, scene, or. You know, the size of the scene, the amount of clutter in the trailer, the fact that uh, nobody likes to get into those uh, uh, confrontations in an open meadow, it seems like. They seem to get backed into a corner in the most inconvenient place possible. 
and we go where the body is. So. And when you have a homicide with with blunt force injuries, sure, you've got off. lots of sure. blood spatter, Certainly. and you're trying to move through a cramped space to document evidence without screwing up evidence. Without disturbing it. That's absolutely right. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I subscribe to the fact that no one gets killed, like you said, in a meadow. <laughs> or at a reasonable hour. Or at a reasonable hour. Although, one of the banner cases I remember working, uh, I can't remember who the investigators were, but uh, was an incident inside of a very, very small house uh, where there was blood floor to ceiling. And there was finger pr- or not fingerprints, footprints in the blood. And uh, actually, I do remember it was uh, Doug. We'll call him Doug, one of my buddies. But uh, this victim had sustained uh, hundreds of non-fatal knife wounds. But they, it's like the Chinese say, a death by a thousand cuts. He had bled out just surely due to the volume of cuts that he had. Uh, and there was blood on the ceiling, the floor, the walls, the countertop. Every surface was covered in blood. I'll never forget the smell of that. Um, and walking through that scene and realizing we have to make sure there's not another live victim or the suspect in the house, so we're going to have to trample over some of the evidence. It's just part of it. Um, it's part of the reason they take photographs of the soles of the shoes. Right. Uh, but that one that the victim had ultimately bled out just shim- simply from the volume of, of injuries he had. Sure. Um, but you were talking about this trailer. So all the scene was contained in the trailer. So the majority of the scene was contained in the trailer. We had, you know, uh, at periods uh, or spots of uh, physical evidence on the entry point and right. things we had to manage. Uh, one of the biggest uh, challenges for uh, removing a body from a scene is the fact that uh, we didn't transport bodies. Uh, we didn't, it was, wasn't a coroner's office. We didn't drive bodies around in a van. Uh, we were the investigative arm of the agency. So we had um, a transport company that was usually a, a bidded service, right. like any other state service. Private uh, contractor. Private contractor that would come out and, and remove those bodies when we were done with our work or to the point we could do that. And uh, getting those multiple individuals sometimes with a gurney, uh, getting the body out of there was always kind of a challenge, again, to try and not disturb the the areas of trace evidence that we want to preserve. Yeah, so private contractors introduced into a crime scene, does that ever become part of the evidentiary process later? Always, always a concern that you try to mitigate. Uh, you know, we started off, when I started off, we were we were sheeting a body. Uh, well, describe that. What's sheeting? So essentially, just taking a clean white sheet, uh, covering the body, and and putting that onto a gurney. Um, may or may not have been a, a body bag involved at that point. When I left, we had you know established procedures where we had a certain type of body bag uh, that was uh, name approved, uh, National Association Medical Examiner approved. Uh, it had a lock, which was essentially a a serial numbered glorified zip tie 
they are similar to what trucking companies yeah. use where you banding the, them. Sure. Yeah. Banding it. And so that we could demonstrate that the moment that body left the scene, it could not have been tampered with along the transport route. So wow. It's, it's virtually impossible to remove a body from a scene without disturbing sure. some sure. evidence. And you take those scenes like you're describing where you've got blood spatters, you've got evidence of a, a, of a fight. I'm sure you had impacts on the wall right. from, because swinging a baseball bat in a contained environment like that cast off but having all of that and trying to document it then get that body out of the way without disturbing evidence is it, it was it, you're going to disturb some evidence it's impossible not to certainly i mean you're going back to locard's theory you're interacting with the scene and you're leaving trace evidence yeah. of your own so yeah, so ultimately, was that, that case result in a conviction? Or? It did. Uh, I believe it was two years later there in McLean County. Yeah. Oh, wow. McLean County. Fine County. I wonder if that trailer park still exists or if uh, the Finger of God tornadoes remodeled that and made it uh, prime property yet. No, I have no idea if it's still there. So. <laughs> so, Which uh, would be a good episode for a topic. You know, I know tornadoes, during, the, oh during the bombing, Kyle and I both were assigned to the medical examiner's office to assist uh, during the May 3rd, 99 tornadoes that struck uh, uh, South Oklahoma. It started down by Chickasha and went all the way out east uh, towards the Prague area. Uh, Again, ended up in the medical examiner's uh, office assisting with uh, body recovery and identification. Yeah, I worked a number of those. That was no yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, even had family members involved in those. So, HL, you were talking about this trailer. How many entities were there? You had, I'm sure you had the police, right? So, we have the county sheriff's office. We had, I uh, believe, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, right. Uh, me and another agent from our office. And then um, I believe that he had been uh, the, uh, the decedent. Um, had been uh, involved in uh, some other, uh, you know, criminal enterprise from another county, maybe uh, Cleveland, and I believe there was another county present. Oh, wow. And if I recall correctly, the uh, assailant had been a CI for that particular county. So <laughs> they were uh, real so, familiar with him. So you're talking four to five entities with probably two to three people each. Sure. So, yeah, in the space of a, a, a trailer Right. You and want I, I'm assuming this was a single wide. This wasn't a posh lakefront uh, double yeah, wide. This right? wasn't anything provided to any Hollywood stars. No. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, anyone got any fun? This is a great episode. Anybody have any final thoughts? I think we've summed it up pretty well. Certainly. Uh, I think you're absolutely the, right. The, the fun thing about these conversations for me is as you tell a story, I think of 10 more stories. Sure. Well, keep them to yourself for now and write them on the whiteboard for the future episodes. Cause you know, one of the problems I have with my own podcast is coming up with subject matter two years later, it gets to be a bit of a challenge. There's only so many times you can talk about firearms training, well, but maybe, maybe you can use some of these episodes and we can use some of your, episodes. Oh, absolutely. And some of the guests are pretty fascinating as well. Well, thanks for tuning in for another episode of the EI Podcast. I'm the current de facto engineer and uh, by default, I guess, guest host, 
Brian, and uh, thanks Kyle, HL, and Gary for coming in for the episode of our first crime scene. Tune in for the next episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Blueberry, Podbean, wherever you like to listen to podcasts, we'll be there. A reminder, check out the sponsors for this week. Of course, Eastridge Investigations, uh, PI firm in the Oklahoma City Norman metro area. Everything from what, uh, gosh, physical security to uh, personal investigations. Anything a PI can do for you, those services are available. Also, EDC Belt Company honorary sponsor this week, uh, the Foundation Belt. Check it out at eastridgepi.com or edcbeltcompany.com. EDC Belt Co. or on the web or everywhere that you want to buy concealed carry equipment. Tune in next week. Oh, reminder, RNG Firearms. FFL for all your transfers and uh, eclectic firearms needs, rngfirearms.net, gun broker transfers, whatever you need to uh, satisfy your collection, uh, RNG firearms. Roger Wagner and Gary Eastridge will take care of you. All right, guys, tune in next week. <laughs>